Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. China finds itself in the middle of a trade war with the United States, with big ramifications for China's fast-growing economy, evidenced by the country's main stock exchange, the Shanghai, recently falling close to a four-year low. China has managed to avoid any military confrontation since taking on Vietnam nearly 40 years ago. But there are several scenarios that could heat up in that regard for Beijing, and most of them involve the U.S. Joining the crisis next door to talk about this is Ray Zong, program assistant for the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. Ray, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Glad to be here. Thank you. China's Xinjiang region is about as far removed from Beijing as you can get within China's massive landmass in the northwest corner of the country, filled with deserts and mountains and a host of ethnic groups, primarily the Turkic Uyghurs. While the Uyghurs have long had to deal with suppression from the Chinese government, the crackdown has been even more forceful since 2009 when massive riots broke out in Xinjiang. Security is heavier, internet censorship has risen, and Uyghurs and other Muslims have been banned from growing beards or wearing Islamic clothing. Uh, Ray, what exactly does Beijing fear from the Uyghurs? Why these big crackdowns? Government media issued like a 15-minute or so um, propaganda documentary that essentially um, asserted that they feared the spread of extremism within Xinjiang. And so um, that is their ideological basis for setting up the sort of carceral systems as well as the technology-based surveillance and other policing programs uh, within the province. So the, we've been seeing very strong language on the need to both contain and prevent the spread of what the Chinese government considers to be the extremism that will endanger it, uh, its national security. How legitimate is the fear in Beijing that men who may have traveled to fight for Islamic fundamentalists in Syria or going back to Xinjiang and possibly stoke resistance against Beijing? Well, China's certainly gotten more active in trying to participate in um, multinational anti-terrorism and anti-extremism campaigns, and we've certainly seen it adapt the um, language and the policy standpoint that uh, Xinjiang's Uyghurs are going abroad to fight for extremist groups and returning. And there have been certain isolated um, incidents attributed to um, Uyghurs. However, the current numbers that there are mass incidents and mass cases of extremism and risks of violence, that has yet to be more solidly corroborated at this time. 
Is it tougher for Islamic fundamentalists to recruit Uyghurs into their uh, causes around the world? Obviously, uh, China has got much more stringent censorship over social media than other parts of the world. And uh, the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, they've really leveraged social media to to get new recruits. Is, is this a problem for them in trying to get Uyghurs to join their cause? I haven't specifically looked into how these groups have targeted Uyghurs, but in terms of um, how the Chinese government perceives it, one of the really early um, actions that a lot of China watchers point to um, that preceded the establishment of these camps was that the Chinese government started limiting overseas travel by um, people from Xinjiang. They took away their passports and set up um, more like like you had to get more approvals to go abroad, and eventually that led to the establishment of increased police and security checkpoints throughout the province. Is there any movement among the Uyghurs to effectively organize a resistance to Beijing in light of all of this? Because of the degree of um, the increase in policing activities, there ascent. Um, China's government is essentially trying to sort of nip any opposition movements in the bud, and you ha- and you have to understand that this is a country where um, public organization and and, and um, things that challenge government sovereignty that's something that they're very sensitive to in the first place. So for Uyghurs, which is a population that the majority Han ethnicity government already monitors, that's just that's just not something that can very easily sort of organically form, especially in Xinjiang. When you look at where Xinjiang is located, uh, long borders with other countries, that uh, there isn't much there in regards of infrastructure. Is that something tough for China to police as far as the comings and goings of anybody who might be able to come in and influence the Uyghurs or possibly help them in their resistance against the government? The Chinese government sort of acknowledges that. It's always been very um, concerned about its peripheries, whether it's uh, Xinjiang or its other, like, or its maritime peripheries. Um, but what's what's been unique about both Xinjiang and I would also say, like, Tibet, Qinghai, which is another uh, large, major- like, majority, like, minority population, is that uh, these peripheries are seen as um, regions where, like, the government will send its officials to, and then, like, see how they can sort of effectively police those sorts of regions. There's a large, there are, they they do that by moving large amounts of, of you know, of police presence, uh, and they also have a larger than usual sort of People's Liberation Army presence. So, um, in terms of how they're able to police this remote region, it's by moving their um, most, you know, advanced um, resources there, and by sort of flooding the region with uh, Han eth- ethnic security presence. How critical is Xinjiang to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which includes tremendous infrastructure investments in countries like Pakistan? Well, the um, province itself, like, it has a little bit of a sort of geographic um, significance, but in terms, and it certainly helps, like, it, it helps link China to the Central Asian states that it's currently engaging it with.
for the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but in in terms of right now, I think it's mostly looking at Xinjiang as a um, as a as a more of a security issue than anything else. The U.S. and European Union have spoken out against the Xinjiang crackdown. Do you think that matters at all to Beijing? Beijing considers the issue a an issue of national sovereignty, and I don't, as of right now, I'm not sure if anything the U.S. or the EU has done has stuck with the with the, with the Chinese government. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about China with Ray Zong, program assistant for the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. Turning to the east and south, China's border by massive bodies of water. It's been extending its influence over the South China Sea and the East China Sea with a combination of economic desires and military control at the heart of it. Uh, There have also been several flybys, including U.S. B-52 bombers, over several bases that China has built in the South China Sea. Ray, it almost seems like a geopolitical game of chicken. Who do you think will blink first? In terms of strategic importance, China has definitely considered, you know, it's it's been building its maritime security resources for some time now. And also in in the diplomatic front, it's been trying to engage with ASEAN to try to um, push its regional views there further. Um, we are starting to see, like, because, again, like a lot of these uh, military buildups, they're not just with China and the U.S., but it's a multilateral issue, which which is a position that the U.S. government has consistently, um, c- consistently registered in a, um, official remarks. And speaking of alliances, the U.S. this year also renamed its Pacific Command the Indo-Pacific Command mm-hmm. with the hopes of bringing India on board to hem China in. How committed is India to doing that? Is China's Belt and Road Initiative involving its arch enemy Pakistan enough incentive for India to get more involved in helping the U.S. contain China? India's relationship with China has always been um, particularly complicated um, because India and China recently had their own um, bo- border um, slash periphery flare up in Bhutan, I think, um, that really sort of um, heightened tensions between the two. I'm not a hundred percent sure on uh, where they are right now in terms of um, India's maritime commitments, but we are starting to see um, India and other um, South and Southeast Asian countries explore. Um, different configurations of multilateral partnerships with Japan, um, with countries that haven't got also haven't gotten along with China that great, like Vietnam. And so, um, at a moment where um, we're starting to see these shake shakeups in terms of um, regional influence, we're we're really starting to see each state's like trying to sort of wedge in its own national interests and try to get the most out of the situation. Over in the East China Sea, the dispute this time is with historic enemy Japan over another group of islands called the Senkaku by Tokyo and the Diu by Beijing. Japan has had control over the islands for well over a century outside of a small time after World War II, but China has been looking to take control of the islands for decades. There have been more military flybys, 
But the two countries have also started a crisis communications hotline to avoid any accidental encounters. Ray, where does the Sino-Japanese relationship stand at this moment? So the issue with Senkaku Diaoyu, I've always felt this has been more of a, like, neither China nor Japan wants to be the, the party that caves on it, but the island itself, it's not particularly economically valuable, so it's it is a little bit of a sort of game theory situation where neither one of them wants to be the one to cave, but also like just how much military or security on Japan in Japan's case, since they can't have a military, how many security resources are they willing to commit to it? That's always been the consistent question when it came to this particular dispute. We've seen more of a rise in nationalism in Japan. Is that a concern at all for China? Well, China's, like, nationalism by the, the average Japanese person, it's, they, they give or take. The two sides have never really been, like, best friends in terms of international relations. What China is watching right now is Japan, how Japan is interacting with other um, countries in the Asia region, including with India. Um, and also, um, they are watching carefully with how Japan is managing its alliance with the United States. China's never been super happy that America has a lot of military bases. Japan houses some of those military bases. The third thing that I think China is watching out for is that um, its Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is um, he's always been on the hawk, more hawkish side and has signaled for the last couple of years that he wants to repeal a certain segment of the Japanese constitution, which will allow Japan to raise a military, which is, again, something that China would be deeply unhappy with. So um, nationalist feelings they can manage, but like in terms of what resources Japan has access to and what alliances it forms, that's, I think, more of a strategic concern for Beijing. Taiwan has long been considered the most likely issue to trigger a military confrontation between the U.S. and China, and relations between Taipei and Beijing have been frosty. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen has repeatedly said that her country won't back down to pressure from China. What's China's long-term strategy here? What can it hope to accomplish? Okay, so um, Tsai Ing-wen, who is the current president of Taiwan, she... um, ran on a campaign to sort of maintain more of a status quo, whereas um, Beijing has been more eager to try to sort of work to integrate, um, you know, economies and sort of cultures and more like institutions between uh, uh, Taiwan and the mainland. So this has been kind of a point of tension. The U.S. and all of this, we our um, government's sort of stance on this was based on uh, the three something called the three joint communiques, which essentially it means that we recognize that there's a there's a there's we recognize a sort of gray area uh, identity here, and so um, but at the same time, like in like. It, there's also a certain degree of vested security interests in uh, cross-strait relations. Let's consider North Korea. Beijing will obviously play a key role in any nuclear disarmament by Pyongyang. 
But will U.S. trade tariffs on Chinese imports threaten those hopes in your mind? I think one thing that people, that, that tends to be a misconception is that Pyongyang is, can take orders from Beijing, where it's, it's kind of tricky. And also, um, Beijing is, uh, although we, are, we, ha- we have seen like, more frequent visits um, and exchanges by top North Korean officials, including um, Kim Jong-un himself, um, wh- like the degree that China is able to push North Korea, that's a little bit up in the air. Um, and additionally, but on the economic side, we, um, we are starting to see uh, Kim Jong-un take an interest in um, potential economic um, opportunities, and um, particularly with South Korea, as he and um, Moon, President Moon Jae-in are in a bit of a warming period. Um, so, and since South Korea gets hit as a secondary effect by U.S. tariffs against China, I think if these tariffs continue to go into effect, they'll sort of bounce and um, impact how the U.S. is able to handle uh, North and South Korea policy as well. Given the potential confrontations all around the periphery of China, would you say the chances of a conflict with the U.S. are greater than they ever have been, or are they pretty much at a status quo? I think right now we have definitely moved into an uh, era of heightened competition. Military conflict or security conflict, it's still hard to say because I think that you know, despite stronger language by each side, there is still this recognition that um, a security conflict would produce a lot of very large-scale consequences. However, um, it doesn't mean that we don't we won't see sharper sort of policy weapons um, via tariffs, via restrictions. Um, this morning, the news dropped that the U.S was imposing some kind of a postage restriction because of a perception that Chinese businesses were um, using cheap postage to flood the U.S. with underpriced goods. So um, we're going to be seeing a lot of different types of policy enacted that might get aimed towards China, but because of the size and scale of the U.S. economy, it's going to have international and global implications. It's going to be interesting to see where all of this heads in the coming months. Ray, thank you very much for joining us here today. No problem. Thank you. You've been listening to The Crisis Next Door, and we've been talking about China with Ray Zong, program assistant for the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.